You're listening to a teaching from Sundown Church. We hope you encounter God through our podcast and experience freedom in your life. Second Samuel chapter 19. As God moves us, transitions us, and prepares us for those things coming, one of the questions that remains from even what I shared this morning about about understanding a vision, being clear about the vision, being in agreement with the vision, and then, and then establishing our life, our purpose, in agreement with it. Even recognizing that I do believe that that's God's heart. He has done some such remarkable things. That that scripture that I love, we love, that tells us that we are to let our light so shine before men so shine, to drive out darkness, to illuminate, that we would so shine that they would see our good works, but know that he is God. We talked about this, let there be light and this rapid expansion of light that came from God's mouth, and he planted that light in the life of Jesus who planted that light in us so that we too could be this rapid expansion of light. The darkness is present, and we have the authority to change it. So the question becomes, what is it that slows us? What is it that keeps us from just immediately hearing, and and again, just recognizing, I'm not talking about extremely grand things. It was interesting, even at our house, in simple conversations, we were talking about those things that are, that are minuscule, the smallest details, but the things that we see that allow us to serve someone else as a child of God, to let us serve someone else, help their life, change their life, transform the moment so that the image of God will be present even in the smallest opportunities. What is the hindrance? Well, I want us to look at this chapter because one of the things that we see is one of the primary reasons why we are hindered. Now, to this group sitting here, this uh, is going to be relevant, but it's probably going to be more relevant for you to take in and perhaps have an opportunity to share. Where we find ourselves in this chapter uh, we recognize that someday Jesus will be king in Jerusalem. We understand that Jesus will sit on the throne of David. He will truly rule and reign on this earth. If we believe in the millennial reign, we believe that Jesus will be established as the ruler over this earth and that that day is yet to come. But today, where does he rule? Where does he reign today? In our hearts. He is the king that sits on the throne of our hearts. He reigns there. 
Well, in this story that we're about to read, Absalom has become king. He was self-appointed, and he did so in rebellion. So now what's happening in the life of the, of the, of the people of Judah is that they are following they, are, they have lent themselves to a false leader, to a false king. They have allowed their time, their energy, their interest to be swayed into the, into the reign of Absalom. And he has, in his rebellion, uh, in his pride, taken his father's throne. And we see him stealing away the hearts of these people. He's making promises and he's stealing away those that were once the followers of David. We watch, and I don't think we're mistaken by this, we watch those who once allowed Jesus to sit on the throne of their hearts. We watch many believers today who had once given themselves to a true king, to a true sovereign over them, and now, strangely, we have watched them be swayed and their hearts pulled away. And we recognize, we recognize for many that their hearts and their lives have been, have been given to a false king. That's happening. It, you know, and, and I don't think, again, I don't think we're confused by what the list includes. What are some of the things that we have allowed to rule over us, reign over us, be prominent in our lives that many still worship? And I'm, I'm going to pick one here that might be a little bit controversial, and I apologize for that. No, I don't. Um, get that straight. Uh, one of the things that we have allowed to reign over us and that, has, that we have given our hearts to, yielded our lives to, are these things that we put on the outside of churches called denominations. We have let those things rule us. We have let those things dominate us. And I know there's a lot of conversation that can be held about about this topic. But the uniqueness of the story to me is that when Jesus prayed in, in John chapter 17, when he was praying for those who would believe, he prayed that they would be one. And I believe that prayer was answered. And I don't believe that he gives us any approval, any authority as the true king to for any reason, especially one predetermined and one that is defended so strongly, has given us permission on any front to intentionally divide ourselves against other believers. A dividing of his body. And I don't see how you can help. If I'm going to put a denominational name on a building, on a church, and somebody else puts a, denominational, a different denominational name on theirs, that a division is not announced and created. I'd, I've watched us. I, I could give numerous other things, but this is one 
that I've watched and people will stand and defend the, the, the denominational king that they've given their lives to. This is strange for me after being in one denomination for so long, feeling like that denomination was right. They were the closest to having things right. They best represented the truth that I believed. And to watch God over the last multiple years dismantle that. And to bring me to a reality that, that there's one king, there's one sovereign over us, that our life and our allegiance is given to him. And that means that by, that by that allegiance to him, by following him as king, I'm not only going to trust him as king, I'm going to trust the other members of his kingdom, even if they're sitting in a building across the street. Not going to, not going to allow intentionally for these divisions, these walls to be created. So that, again, one example of what a, what a false king looks like. Do you think it's detrimental to us? Do you think the long-term effect has been damaging? Well, the question now becomes, wrapped up in these verses, I want to read these. Uh, let's read verses 9 and 10 to start with. And all the people were at strife throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king saved us out of the hand of our enemies. He delivered us out of, the, out of the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land for Absalom. So who's, who are they acknowledging is really their king? It's David. He's out of the land. He's gone because Absalom ran him out. His own son ran him out. <clears throat> and Absalom, whom we appoint, who we anointed, listen to these words, and Absalom, whom we anointed over us. So who put the king in place? They did. They let David be run out. They, by their choice, anointed another king. It said, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why speak you not a word of bringing the king back? So what do you think this message is about? It's about the restoration in our hearts of the true king. It's about understanding that, that he is our sovereign. It's about inviting him back onto the throne of our hearts. And again, I recognize that in this room, Many have, he sits squarely there. But it's still important for us to ask, is there any other throne that we are yielding to? Is there any other sovereign? Is our, are our hearts divided between the one true king and these that we have anointed and put in place? <clears throat> What's the number one reason we choose to bring King Jesus back onto the throne of this heart. What happened here? The false king failed. We didn't invite him back because we were eager for him to be back. We invite him back 
because what we were trusting, what we put our heart to, what we put our hand to, failed. It was interesting, just a strange little note. Uh, when uh, Roselle Edwards passed away, uh, her nephew uh, preached the, the message. And we, we were sitting over here and we were talking about church and he was talking about his life and his history in the Baptist church and all these kind of things. And uh, uh, he asked about the fact that we didn't have a sign and I just kind of told him in, in, in a very short way why, what all the things that have happened and, and not necessarily what the church believes but what I believe and we had that conversation. And he said, you know, it's kind of interesting because he said many years ago, many, many years ago, like back in the 60s or 70s, there was a recommendation that as a denomination that the Baptist denomination would remove the name Baptist from all their churches. He said it failed quickly. But the recommendation was made back that far that we would not be able to survive if we maintained that name. Too much separation, too much division. I thought it was interesting. He remembered it, he shared it with me over here, and I just thought that was an interesting moment when a warning, a prophetic look, was announcing that we, would, we will do better when we tear the barriers down than when we strengthen them and try to maintain them. I mean, you can read Ephesians 2. What, what did the work of Jesus do? It tore down the barriers. It tore down the partitions that had been built, and it created a unity that did not exist before. We also recognize that what we, we will turn back not only when the false king failed, but we will turn back to the true king when we see the, the heart of the false king we're following. When we see the false, when we, when we see what it promotes, when we see what it stands for, when we see the heart of that false king, we will suddenly long for that other king, that former king as well. King Jesus on the throne of our hearts. We, have, we watch this. We, I watch, you do too. I mean, we're, we're not isolated from this situation. How many things that believers give themselves to, time, attention, money, effort, how many things that as believers we give our time and attention to, our loyalty to, our attention to, that, that we quite unintentionally but very often begin to serve. And I've, I've got a list here, and I'm not going to say it because, uh, but man, that list gets, it gets real personal real quick. You know, we, we elevate, you know, there, I don't, probably not in the group that typically comes on Sunday night, but, but, uh, if the Dallas Cowboys were playing the Green Bay Packers right now, we might have a different group. 
No, but we, we might have a little bit of a different group. <laughs> because isn't it strange that we worship it? Isn't it strange that we give attention and time to it? Not, nothing, there's no evil in it, except for the fact that it becomes a distraction because we give great time, great attention to those kind of things. It happens often. And we don't even see it anymore as a loyalty or a, or a commitment to a sovereign. But when we begin to see, when we begin to recognize that it is fading or failing, we typically will return to King Jesus. Let's, let's read now in verse 11. And King David sent to Zadok and to Abiathar, I'm probably not saying those right, the priest saying, Speak unto the elders of Judah, saying, Why are you the last to bring the king back to his house? Seeing the speech of all Israel has come to the king, even to his house, you are my brethren, you are my bones and my flesh. Wherefore then are you the last to bring back the king? And say you unto Amasa, Art thou not of my bone and of my flesh? God do so to me, and more also, if thou be not captain of the host before me continually in the room of Joab. And he bowed the heart of all the men of Judah, even as the heart of one man, so that they sent his word unto the king, return now, and all thy servants. We, we see this now and say, okay, Absalom has failed. They've seen the truth. They have recognized they want David back. We have realized that some of the things that we have put our heart to have failed. Now we ask King Jesus back onto, onto the throne of our heart. And the assumption, the mental assumption is that he would be so overjoyed by the fact that I had turned, repented, that he would just race back into that place now vacant. Why didn't David race back the minute that Absalom failed? Why didn't he go back? I mean, it's his position. It's his throne. When he heard the news of Absalom's death in battle, why didn't he say to his family, why didn't he say to his entourage that had left out of Jerusalem, why didn't he say to that entourage, hurry, get packed, we're going home? He had not been invited back. And he's asking this question, you know me, you understand me, you are, you are intimate with me, you are close to me, why are you not inviting the king back on his, onto his throne? So please understand, our false king might have failed. And we may say, okay, vacancy now open, King Jesus come back. But there is a reality to this that we still have to be aware of found in those pages. David would not force his reign on Israel. What can we then say of Jesus? He will not force 
his reign on us. David would, would only come back if the tribes who rejected him would accept him as the king, not one of the kings. They would not. He would not come back until they established him and accepted him as the king and not a shared kingdom with anything else. David did not lift a finger to reestablish his authority. Jesus will do nothing to reestablish his authority. Now this sounds a bit odd, but we understand from the beginning that I became a believer because of, an, because of a response to an invitation, but I, I had to ask. Now again, big questions here. I understand that, but I, I don't believe I'm confused that though, though my sins were forgiven by the work of the cross, there still had to be a moment when I would receive the gift of that salvation. It was actually a choice that I made. He did not force even that salvation on me. He will not force his reign over us. Every day we wake in submission to this king because as I told you before, one of the unfortunate things that even I mentioned about this morning, you know, that Rex Clayton, the former pastor, told us about his daughter who would slip out the window or did once, I think, and his conversation with her was, when you do that, everything that I can do for you as a father to protect you, to provide for you, to comfort you, to counsel you, to guide you, everything that happens when you're in the house, the minute that you slip out that window, you become the father of your own life. Those things are now dependent on you. So he is king, sovereign over us. He will not move, but I can absolutely slip out the window so that who now gets to be the king of my life? I do. This is the most normal split. This is the split that we keep asking him to come back into. We keep asking him to come share the throne of my heart with me. I'll let you be king sometime. I want to be king sometime. That's not what David would agree to. Say, I don't want to share. There shall be no other gods before me. His return, David's return required voluntary submission. God will not force his reign on us. Our hearts must be swayed, brought back by the word of God and by the work of the Holy Spirit. If we remove the Holy Spirit, it will become a decision that we make, simply a decision. When the Holy Spirit is involved, he will not only show us anywhere that our heart is divided. What, what was David's prayer? Look at me, Father. This prayer, this request, look at me, review me, show me. Show me my heart. David asked for that. I can tell you right now that for us, we need to ask the Holy Spirit, are there other kings? Are there other thrones? Lesser perhaps, but one that we're asking Jesus, the Holy Spirit, to share 
in our life? Do you think the sharing of that throne would make us less likely to follow a vision, less likely to eagerly participate in those things of God? Certainly it would, because if I know he's sovereign and the only sovereign, when he speaks, what am I going to do? I'm going to obey. What if I have another sovereign, me? What if I want to be God sometime? Would it affect my willingness to follow a prophetic reality, a revelation that he's given, or obedience that he's asking for? If I have a, if I have a dual king, two thrones, sure it will. It's, it will absolutely have an effect because I will think when something needs to be done, No, I can't do that because I've obligated my time to something else. I'm I'm preaching this whole sermon because, as I said this morning, on March the 6th, I'm going to need volunteers to come move all these chairs out of this room. All I'm doing now is just trying to make you feel guilty so that when I ask you, you'll say yes. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm not. I'm not kidding. (laughs) Still you to show up. Do what? Because you're going to set the tables and chairs up in here for, the for that ladies' conference. Yeah. Needs, the, the whole conference has to focus. You can't, you can't set it up in chairs like this. You'll see when it's done, but you can. But yeah. So, uh, but that's why we have portable chairs. We can move. So, it's just a room. Yeah. Thank goodness it's just a room. I like that. I'm going to finish by reading these last three verses, beginning in verse 15. So the king returned, came to Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to go to meet the king, to conduct the king over Jordan. And Shemaiah, the son of Gera and Benjaminite, which was of Bahurim, hasted and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And there were a thousand men of Benjamin with him. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, and his 15 sons, and his 20 servants with him. And they went over Jordan before the king. And there went over a ferry boat to carry over the king's household and to do what he thought good. And Shemaiah, the son of of Gera, fell down before the king as he was coming over Jordan. As he'd come over Jordan, he said to the king, "Let Let not my Lord impute iniquity unto me. Neither do thou remember that which thy servant did perversely the day that my Lord the king went out of Jerusalem and the king should take it to his heart. Here was David's re-entry as king. He He would not return until he was welcomed, until the hearts were ready to receive him. I don't know exactly how to interpret this. I don't know what it looks like for an individual heart to invite King Jesus back onto this throne to be the only sovereign over us. But we, we watch here David's return. How is it characterized? There were thousands who came to greet him. They were contrite. They were bowing before him. They were eager to receive him. They were anxious for his return. They demonstrated that as they went out to greet him. They, it wasn't just laying, laying back in Jerusalem and say, oh, I think, I, think, I think David's about to get here. You know, be nice to have him home. 
No, there was excitement, anticipation. Why? Because what had they just experienced? They experienced the rebellion. They experienced the consequences. They experienced all of those things that Absalom and rebellion had brought them. And now where was their hope? It was in David. It was in the return of the king, the true king, to the true throne to be reestablished in that place. When we finally understand that the gods that we've been trusting won't do what we have asked them to do, they won't support us, we won't be, we won't be trying to hang on to that former king. We will release it easily and we will swing our hearts in anticipation of the return of King Jesus, just like we're waiting for him right now to step onto this earth as King of kings and Lord of lords when he will reign over Jerusalem, we will, we will turn our hearts and greet him home just as being described as King David in this passage. David left as a fugitive, rejected by his nation and hunted by his son. He came back escorted by thousands of enthusiastic subjects. Again, I don't know exactly how to translate that in to what our hearts should look like. But I don't have any trouble picturing this moment. I can just imagine David's returning and he begins to hear this sound before he sees anything. He begins to hear the applause. He begins to hear the cheers. He begins to hear the weeping. He hears the, 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 the subjects long before he sees them. A king returning to his throne. I wonder exactly how I could paint that picture in anyone's heart except the recognition that that which I had lost, that which I had questioned, that which I had doubted, is now back on the throne. I hope, I truly hope that for you, for me, for anyone in this position, and I, again, I get to sit in an unusual place. I, I, I get to sit with people here in my office in Lubbock, uh, the coffee shop where I, where I meet with people. And I, I get to have these conversations of these remarkable changes in their lives. Healing, restoration. It's, it's, one, it, it's a tremendous amount of fun to be able to sit with somebody and watch them come to life. Watch them lay down those former things. Watch them as that brokenness, watch them as those things that they had heard, the things that they had trusted, the things that they had believed in are just melted away. It is, it is tremendously fun to get to meet with those people after they've been delivered and hear those testimonies of how their lives have changed. I, I don't think they would be bothered by me telling this. I'm not telling anything confidential that you seeing them wouldn't know. But I, I meet with a lady named... Uh, Jackie Collins, y'all have seen her here. She, you know, uh, she was baptized here. I meet with another lady that I don't, most of you haven't met. Her name is Judy Edwards. And uh, I didn't realize they were friends, but hadn't, hadn't seen each other in a long time. So I, I mentioned Jackie's name to Judy one day, and she said, 
she calls her by another last name. I don't remember what it was. And she said, yeah, we have, our, our kids were in elementary school together, kindergarten together. And she said, but I haven't seen her in years. So I gave, I gave Jackie Judy's number and she contacted her. And so when I'm meeting with Judy on Friday, she said, well, we, Jackie and I had breakfast yesterday. We just had a remarkable time. These two women who have both been delivered, both been restored, both, both seen these huge changes in their lives. And now another bridge is built, another connection made, more healing, more restoration. And it's just fun to watch it happen to watch this transforming power of God bring what nobody else could put together, no one else could do. I'm amazed by it, constantly amazed by what happens when we, when we will let God do what he will do, lay down those things that are broken and let the king return. I get to see glimpses of this kind of excitement, of this kind of a return in the testimonies of those folks and... Uh, it, it's just truly fun to watch. So who are the typical rebellious? Who is it that would seek another, another king? I'm just going to give you three. One, you will find that other sovereign, that other king, that false king in the lives of those who have chosen a casual separation and a and a, and a somewhat of a distant relationship with God. They didn't really just make a decision to leave. They just kind of drifted away. Because the relationship with God was casual, they only knew him kind of at a distance. They only knew him as Savior. They only knew a little bit. It was very easy for them to be persuaded to, to give time and attention to someone else. The second group. It's a group that recognize that, yep, I rejected him. Yeah, my life's not on track, but never invited him back. They knew the answer. They knew what was needed. They got off track. They just didn't invite him back into that place. My mind right now can, can begin here and think about people that are in exactly that boat right now. They know, they know that there's something in the way. They know that it needs to be laid down. They know that Jesus is the one that needs to return to their hearts, to return to that throne, and they will not do it. They just won't do it. The third group is the truly rebellious. Now, again, I, I know there's many stories, many situations, many circumstances, but the ones that I find that I deal with that are the truly rebellious are the ones that somehow got hurt, someone who, who was disappointed, someone who was frustrated, someone who got their feelings hurt, who were uh, neglected in some small detail, and they have chosen to just walk away offended, there will be some that will just because of situations in life will, will shake their fist at God and really be rebellious. Most of that rebellion that I see is because someone hurt them. And because someone hurt them, they're not coming back. Jan and I watched the movie, the true story of uh, 
has Jennifer Gardner in it. Uh, I think it's Miracles from Heaven or something like that. Their daughter has an incurable disease, falls down through this tree, hits her head, and is completely cured. When she was in the, in, in the church, uh, a couple of ladies, one of the guys comes and says, you know, are you, are you asking God who has sin in their life? Because if this little girl's not being healed, someone's got sin and you need to make sure you know who it is because your, your sin is keeping this little girl, your daughter, from being healed. What did she decide? She was, I mean, at that moment, I'm never going back there. Never going to go back there. You see, I wish that wasn't unusual. But we find it more often than we should. And in those kind of moments, the, the, the rejection isn't of God. But when you turn on the things of God, the things he's established, he won't be sovereign over your life. You have become God again. I bring this because there's more leadership in this room. There's enough leadership in this room to absolutely begin this new season of this, of this church's story. How he's going to move through us, in us, and by us. Why he has called Parker to build this fire. As again, I told you this morning, that, that light of the, that he tells us to be, let your light so shine. That light is the light from a fire. The Greek word, phos. It's the light from a lamp, a flame. The light that God is asking us to share, rapid explosion of light, is going, going to come, that fire, because we learn and go back, grassroots, serving those who need to be served. That's the new vision. It's, a new, it's, it's, an, it's what God has shown us. It will require this leadership. And we will absolutely be ready to step into those places if King Jesus is on the throne of our hearts. Father, thank you this afternoon, this evening, for just bringing us reminders. Such a wonderful story in this time of David. He was rejected. He was substituted another king in his place until this moment. And that false king has failed. And now their hearts are turned back to you. Thank you for this picture because we know it's so true in how, in how we trust you as the king over our own hearts. We know someday you're going to sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem. Right now, Father, you reign in our hearts. And I pray, Father, that you would find us to be these subjects who, first of all, couldn't be swayed. But if we are, that we would let our hearts be completely returned, completely restored to only one king, only one sovereign, and that it would be you. Thank you, Father, for this reminder. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message. For more resources, visit sundownchurch.com.